You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. I'm Avram Kivalevich. This is Standing in Two Worlds. And I am looking at my good friend, colleague, mentor in some ways, Dr. Sam Juni, who is joining us from Yerushalayim. And um, Dr. Juni, as the days get shorter, as we are here in the winter, I know you've adjusted your schedule a little bit to uh, to allow us to be able to record and produce these things. Uh, everybody's adjusting um, during this period. Yerushalayim, of course, is experiencing, along with Eretz Israel, severe lockdown, and other measures are being uh, invoked here in the United States, especially in the Northeast. I think one of the factors that, um, I don't know if it's going under the radar, uh, it's definitely uh, uh, had a lot of secular press, and that is the uptick in divorces uh, during the COVID-19 era, which I guess begins somewhere, at least for the United States, in March. But even, let's say, in other areas of Europe, um, worldwide, there has been, again, this is not, uh, this number might be a little bit off by one or two percent, but I think there is a, in between 35 and 40 percent increase in divorces uh, during this period. Uh, People have pointed out that bad marriages were anyway perhaps going on their way out, and this could have exacerbated things. Uh, But I think clearly, and I happen to know from anecdotal ways, that marriages are in trouble. Uh, Even in the Jewish world, where in the Jewish Orthodox world, where there's a stigma connected to divorce, which I know you have something to talk to say about that, there has been more divorces. There have been uh, more cases, despite the fact that other cases in the best in the, that I know that I'm associated with have been shunted to the side. Divorce cases have actually increased. Uh, I know a number of, of divorce cases that have occurred. Uh, I'm in, and, and I think that this really begs the issue about the solvency and the strength of relationships, specifically husband and wife, men and women relationships, um, and how uh, they are being tested. And maybe other people are, you're not just testing on an individual way, maybe it's time for Dr. Sam Juni to give us a perspective in general about these relationships, these bonds, and maybe even a prescription of how we can make it work and get through periods of intense stress and difficulty, especially if people are compressed together and need to really find a a, a mode of conversation and connection beyond just the physical romantic attraction that started them off. Okay, I think that was a pretty centered question, and I know you've got a lot to say about this. So um, go ahead, Dr. J. Okay, thank you again. I'm glad to be here. And I love the way you throw these huge pies at me. That would take a couple of courses to settle off in a half hour or 40 minutes. So that's delightful, but it's okay. I am not going to step away from a dare. So first of all, you mentioned that you are a mentee or I'm a mentor of yours. I was not aware of that. And I sure would hope that's not the case because I enjoy you as a colleague and I don't want to see you being adulterated with my point of view. (laughs) <laughs> make life much less exciting well i'll okay. tell you let, let me let me just interrupt for a second i know people don't want to hear necessarily my story but people have have uh, my family has upbraided me for years 
why I have never voted. How come you've never voted? And, and again, my kids are so proud and voting. My daughter uh, spent hours re-watching the presidential and vice presidential debates before deciding who to send her ballot in. And they all know that dad has never voted. Dad has never voted. And you are my Rebbe in that area because when I was a young lad, you trained, you gave me the idea, which I've never lost. It's not going to make a difference anyway, uh, especially where I live. And therefore, I always look at you as, as I still remember that cheer that you gave about the, in, the efficacy of voting. Oh, it's not going to help at all. So you could talk about you, that later. You if just you just alienated 40% of our listening audiences, <laughs> but let's not go there. We can reserve this for another time. <laughs> okay. okay. All let's right. There it was. But you, but you remember that cheer, right? You remember when you gave me that cheer? That is one. Yes, of... yes, I do. Yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that's okay. that's what I mean specifically. You're my mentor as far as that let's, goes. Let's you are my politi- you are my political mentor. But go ahead. Let's move far away from there. Okay. So let me just start with some anecdotes. When I do diagnostics, I don't only do diagnostics of individuals. I've done consulting where I diagnose an organization or I diagnose an entire hospital or more commonly diagnose a relationship such as a marriage. And I remember that um, sometimes my diagnostic ended in an unequivocal prescription for a divorce. And I have to say, I don't see those as failures on my part at all. I see those as accurate diagnostics. So as you mentioned, the fact that more divorces are coming to the fore in situations of more pressure is not an indictment um, of the situation that it's an intolerable situation because in many cases where marriages hang together just because there isn't a particular crisis coming up, that does not mean that the marriage should hang together. When I say should, I I mean from a health perspective, both of the marriage or the individual. So that was just one pointed comment to, to the introduction that you made. So I, I, let me just start off talking in general about the construct of marriage. And again, I am not playing rabbi here. I don't have to play you when you're here. I'm going to speak basically beyond the halachic issues. In other words, I'm not contesting the halacha at all, saying that this is the prescription or this is the ideal way where the Torah wants you to live. Uh, you know, the parsha says that this week, this is what's supposed to happen from God's perspective. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a prescription for the ultimate um, benefit of each individual's autonomy or ego or mental health, because there are quite a few things that the Torah wants us to do that come at the expense, either physical health, mental health, family issues. So that, as far as I'm concerned, is not a contradiction at all. And I'm not treading on eggshells because I'm not trying to question what the halacha is here or what the halacha prescription is or what God wants from us. I'm fine with that. I just want to talk about the area that I understand, which is basically at what price. And then we can go into this level-headed. We can put our hand in this, our head in the sand and say, of course, if this is the prescription, that means that I will be happiest and most fulfilled, and that my um, uh, children and my family and my extended family will be the most adjusted that they can possibly be psychologically. And I just want to say there is quite a a degree of daylight between the Allahic prescription and what it does to you as a person. Okay, so let me, that's my preamble. So let me just talk about the institution of marriage. And again, because I've taught 
in liberal um, university for all my life, I have to give the preamble that no nothing I say here is necessarily constricted to heterosexual marriages. That it applies just as well to homosexual um, unions, regardless of what our moral value might be about that or not. Okay, so just let me say, there's nothing distinct over here about heterosexuality as such. Fine, that's my disclaimer that I have to give as a card-playing card union member with insurance problems and malpractice. That's out there. So, I, 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 Just before you go on, those people that have been listening to the quote-unquote debates uh, in, in, in the United States, and of course I know in Eric Israel, maybe they're not interested, but this would be the moment. I, I, I'm, this is not a debate, uh, Dr. Juni. You are definitely, this is your program. Um, but this would be the place where I, I know that there are people from the Torah world that say, what did he just say? Yeah, they would be interrupting you. They would try to be talking over you and saying, Lo odam levado. it isn't good that man should be alone, right? It, it, lo tov. God is saying how this is objectively not what creation is. Adam looks and cannot find any uh, people, any bodies among the animal world. He needs to have a woman in order to keep the uh, species going, right? And and so these are you alluded to that, but I can see someone from a fundamentalist perspective jumping up and saying, you know, okay, did we just let him get away with saying that that this is that? Yeah. So I want you. In your answer to address that, because we have a lot of listeners who this is their worldview and this is where they come from. And they they're jumping up and I'm just acting as their proxy. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Thank you for raising that, because I have to tell you that wearing one of my hats, I'm a, as much of a, as a fundamentalist as any of those listeners you're alluding to. And I'm not debating that Hashem said, meaning that it's not good. For a man to be alone, a man should be married with a woman. And I am just saying that when God says lo tov, he's not talking about the Freudian perspective of good or the Western perspective of good or the ego uh, infantilizing perspective of good, which is what most of us are stuck in when we live in the Western world. In other words, we're not saying, is it good for the world that marriage exists as an institution for almost all people? And the answer is yes, God said so, and we believe in what God said. But that is not the same as saying, therefore, it's good for my mental health, it's good for my spouse's mental health, it's good for my children's mental health. So how can God say it's good? God says it's good because that is the ultimate good that God designed the world for. Just like God would say, the inisam is nafshel seichem and yom kippur, which means you are tormenting your body. That's not good for the body, right? The answer is no, it's not good for the body, but it's good for a higher cause. So again, I am not battling the fundamentalist view because I am a fundamentalist as well when it comes to understanding the absolute value of what Hashem tells us. That's not the point. But I have another ad over here too, which is what does it do to you as a person for your ego? for your needs, for your self-validation, which are all technically subsidiary to God's will. So that's not an issue. I hope that made that clear. And if people want to email me, I'll be happy to bat it back and forth. We can debate it. Okay, so let's talk. Okay, let me try to move on now to, to marriage itself. Okay, so we have, um, we'll, we'll think of a counterpoint. Okay, so at one point, I am interested in getting married, raising a family, 
or whatever, getting married, being in a relationship that satisfies me emotionally, that satisfies me perhaps as a person, sexually, whatever it is. And I want to contrast that with my sophomore year in college, where I get a notice from the dean of students saying, Sam, it's time to choose a roommate again for the next semester, or in one case, it was actually for an entire year. And I want to contrast those two kinds of choices that I have. And I can tell you that choosing a roommate was not pleasant. And it was fraught with um, um, questions. It was fraught with possibilities of being quite uncomfortable. And I have been miserable sometimes for a semester or an entire year having a roommate that was just totally unsuited, totally unsuited. And I'm talking about I had the, the luxury of growing up having just one roommate in college, you know, that's uh, some people have more, but I had one and it was not pleasant. It was quite a chore. And just going by somebody's name or declared major or uh, interest and fraternities, not enough, not enough. It, it caused a lot of issues. So I want to contrast that with finding someone that I want to be a roommate with for a number of years. And in fact, in some, if we're of a certain religion until death do us part, that may be universal to all religions. I don't know. But basically, I'm thinking a long-term roommate here, and the amount of questions I would ask in graduate in, in undergraduate school or marrying somebody or lahavdil, getting a chavrusa for one's mom, okay, even if it's for an elul's mom, right? Getting a chavrusa. If you've ever been to yeshiva gedolos and you have the tumult that goes on, the constant phone calls to Reb Elia or to Reb Shmuel or to whoever it is is your mentor saying, should I take this guy, should I take that guy? And you quickly get a resume together and you describe them or whatever, and you go through it, and it doesn't always work. And when it does work, saying it works is a limited question. How well are you learning? How miserable are you? How much do you feel respected? How much do you feel validated? How much do you feel that you're merely just covering ground without really having a chance to understand your questions? And to answer them, how much are you capable of helping out your chavrusa if that's a goal of yours? How much can you get to see different perspectives that you may or may not agree with? You can see those are questions just in the cognitive domain. And when you get to a marriage, they're much, much bigger. And I can tell you that the fallout that exists in marriages, I'm not talking about theological fallouts. I'm talking about psychological mental health fallouts are much worse than the fallout you get from a roommate for a semester, or for a chavrusa for an Ella's man, or even for a chavrusa for the entire year. Okay? So we're starting with that. Sure. Um, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. No, so, no, no, this, no. Again, like we say, look, this is not a tennis match, and this is... Okay. This is... Fine. I I'm, <laughs> I just have to tell you, and again, part of, you know, I think part of what we, we are both finding out in the podcast realm is that... Um, in many ways, information is also uh, second, not secondary, but almost equal to the banter and and the mm-hmm. background of the people that are talking. So I, I would tell you, when I first experienced the Chavrusa Tumul that you're talking about, um, I was in the one which is now the biggest yeshiva in, in Eretz Yisrael, the Mir. It wasn't at, at that time; it was not, but. Now the mirror, you know, it's 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 a, it's a city in itself, and I was there for that chavrusa tumul uh, when I was seventeen years old, um, and I, of course I had been in a very small yeshiva up until that point, and it's it, probably very traumatic. It's a very traumatic. I I was I, it, I I my sense, and this is we're going back forty five years almost since that occurred, 
discuss, I had disgust from it, to tell you the truth. It was disgust. I felt, I, I could not believe my ears that people that I respected, who I thought were, you know, noble, wanted to know the, the grimiest, silliest little things about all of a sudden it was almost like cloak and dagger. What do you know about this person? What is he like? And again, mm-hmm. to me, I, you know, I had been in small yeshiva, small schools, and I was many times matched with someone that I've never, we don't even speak the same language. Like what's going on here? You know, there's such a big difference in terms of our backgrounds. And I found that the experience was more often than not positive, no matter what, because the the thing that we were doing created a dynamic that was interesting and that was generally beneficial. My point was that what I saw was a micro, I, I didn't know that term then, but the, uh, the idea that they could micromanage this relationship that was going to last for a year and, and get all the checkboxes done caused them to actually become ugly in terms of what they wanted to find out, violating the laws of gossip, Lashon Hara, and other things, and wanting to know way more than was necessary. Because instead of going with the flow and and, and, and enjoying the, the idea of being in yeshiva and learning, I, I, I thought this was officious and, and, and weird and strange. And the fact that it went on, let me just say one more point about that, and, and, and you probably remember it as well. There was no learning going on during a couple of days. Like here I was, it was right after Yom Kippur, you know, the, 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 the newsman. I was gung-ho, 17 years old. We're going to start, we're going to learn. And for two days, everybody is going around, milling around, talking about each other and trying to find out information. And I became... All of a sudden, me, one of the youngest boys in the school, was now a repository. What do you know about this person? What, what can you tell me about him? I, 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 it was it was ridiculous. And I think it's really a model to the way many shaduchim and other types of relationships occur as well. So I just wanted to add that, that that was, and I still feel it 45 years later. But go ahead. Doc. Yeah, now I was going to concur, basically, that when you were talking now, I was thrown back to the studies I've done yeah. with people in Bahrain about arranged marriages. I remember there was a, a star student in graduate school who said she had to quit in the middle of the semester because her parents found her a, um, a uh, person to marry. And I've had these same kinds of exchanges with people in the Haredi world, people in the um, um, Bedouin world. So that's the same kind of rationale somehow. I can't say what the rationale is, but the issues are the same. So basically, so let me just go there in terms of the marriage stuff. I'll give you two cute examples. Um, I, I'm known as a rough diagnostician and, and physicians often send people to me to diagnose where they know the answer and they just send them to me because I can speak bluntly, which is an expensive price to pay for blunt speaking. So I remember once I, I, um, this, I think this is the loveliest message I've ever gotten on my answering machine. And I pick up, you know, I get the message. It says, Dr. Juni, I've been waiting 24 years to make this phone call. You did a diagnostic on my child when he was four years old. And you said, this, this child will never develop into someone with an adaptive personality. And my son just got married. And the person hangs up the phone. Okay. <laughs> And I'll give you another cute story, which is that uh, there was a um, a fellow in Detroit who had come up as a physician, came up with a treatment program using like 
thousands and thousands of combinations of um, multivitamins that he said was effective in blocking out all the negative effects of Down syndrome um, genetic problems. And uh, of course, I was all excited about it uh, years ago. And I looked into the literature and the criteria were how many of his patients got married. And uh, again, you know, getting married is not an indication or is not a solution of any problems. Often it's a compounding of problems that now you don't only have your own, but you have another person's two concocted together. So I just want to like link that to longevity of marriages. Most very often um, proponents of arranged marriages speak to the longevity of the marriage as an indication of its success or of its having been the right thing for the partners. Again, that doesn't follow because that's an issue of social pressures or that's an issue of people not wanting to rock the boat or an issue of people perhaps taking marriage as a mandate um, to which they bury their own individual concerns. So again, I don't want to talk about the overall mandates. I want to talk about the mental health aspects. So offhand, taking two people together who have, they're, they're by definition different. They probably have different styles or different desires. And you put them together and say, now you have to adjudicate each of these if you want to maintain this relationship. So the adjudication can be, maybe you take a day or two off where you can be a total like um, irresponsible person, do what you want to and work at the rest of the days of it. Maybe not. Those are issues. But the point is that you can't expect to take a person and just reform them because they're in a relationship. You can't expect it behaviorally if there's a contract, but you can't expect them to be content or happy with it. There's no question they will feel, hey, I'm missing out on stuff. This is another person's perspective. Some people are trained to think there is one right answer. People who think I'm black and white are going to get into a lot of trouble because here we have two opposing views. One of us is right, one of us is wrong. Of course, if you're more relativistic and more philosophical, you tend to get along better. But you can't just have the attitude that somehow this is going to work out. I want to give you a cute little story. Um, I had somebody come in who's um, basically a colo couple came in. And the wife is presenting the person. This is the son of Rosh Hashiva, a very big London, the, 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 um, the young man himself. She said, the problem is that every now and then he doesn't go to Minyan. He doesn't put on tefillin. He sits there all day and stares at his phone. Okay. And I told the person, okay, it sounded to me like classic uh, depression, the cyclical. So I said, do me a favor, keep a log, keep a log of when this happens. And she comes back finally, it's once every like between 36 and 38 days that this happens for two days. Okay, so I said, okay, your husband is suffering. He was there too, I told it about them, your husband is suffering from cyclical depression, easily treated by antidepressants. She says, thank you. We don't want that. Everything is fine. So I said, wait a moment, you're not bothered anymore? She says, no. I was bothered because I thought either that he's a faker, he's not really interested in what he's doing, or perhaps that he's distressed about me, that he's thinking about other relationships. Now that I know what's happening, I have no problem. He's a from guy, he's a yeshivish guy, he has something medical that puts him out of commission. I don't want to mess up his mind. I don't want to mess up our relationships with medication. So what's happening there? is that it's the actual behavior that's not so troublesome. It's the implications of the behavior which could be disturbing in a relationship. And so long as people know, okay, 
that's not what's going on. They're happy. So I'm thinking of a, a couple, each having, each person having different ideas or different desires or different ways of looking at the world. If their intent, in that, intent is that they have to equalize, not just behaviorally, but emotionally or philosophically or intellectually, there's going to be a lot of trouble because people are not matched intellectually, philosophically, or emotionally. They could match in terms of their behavior by contract, but they're not matched that way. If they then become junior illegitimate psychologists or philosophers saying, oh, the fact that this person is not agreeing with me, that means he's putting me down. He's not validating me. He thinks I'm just an idiot. That's going to be a lot of trouble. But if you have the allowance saying, this is a different person. This is not me. I did not marry a clone. If you want to marry a clone, you're nowhere. You're not going to have a relationship. You're going to have yourself with your navel. It doesn't work. So if you want to have someone who is different and yet you work together towards a certain goal and thereby fulfill certain kinds of mandates which are transcendent and coming from Hashem, beautiful. But if you think you're going to even things out over here, it's not going to work, which is precisely what the culture is in the secular world of living together, which basically means we're going to be together. When you live together, there isn't the same kind of commitment as in the marriage. It's understood that you can do one of many various things, and there are all kinds of clauses that are implicit in that kind of relationship. But the pressure is off to say, hey, are we really match? As if really, really means something. Really, really doesn't mean anything. All it means is that, yeah, we want, we're going to share the rent. We might even have kids together. We want to make sure they get a good education. But it's understood that I'm going to like certain things. I know of a couple where it came close to a divorce when a husband went to a movie by himself a movie that the wife would never go to. I know another instance where a wife like blew a gasket when the husband passed by a clinic and he saw free flu shots. He took a flu shot without his wife. She freaked out, okay? Now, that kind of expectancy that somehow of a hayul of vasar achat also means you become one shama and you have no different desires and no different goals that's a hard fiction. It's a hard story. And when you're pressed into that, you basically are going to stop existing as a person. Yeah. You might see that it, that's what Baha'i al-Basarachat means. I don't think so. I'm yeah, well, I, I, okay, I don't think it means that either. And I think that I just want to jump in and, and play the uh, biological historian here and, and tell you <clears throat> that we all know that even without the Torah, that there is this implied aspect in the heterosexual relationship. The husband, the big bodied being that God made men stronger, ability to hunt and gather and be able to kill the game or till the soil, right? Which gives them a prowess to bring in the ability to eat and continue. The woman as the as the fecund uh continuer of life right but that's what god wants but she also offers the uh the erotic enjoyment to the man right so there is this trade-off man has woman woman makes him feel good man then goes out and supports and brings in man also not only gets erotic enjoyment he man enjoys seeing children that are the extension of himself he feels good woman provides those children woman spends all the time raising those children woman spends all the time in the house making uh, a cave that the children can thrive in man happy 
man has children that, that, that listen to him, that join him in his hunting and his gathering. And this is the aspect, this is the primitive aspect of a relationship, which continued even in the time of the Torah, the time of Chazal, the time up until the period that the economic uh, and uh, scientific revolution changed things. And all of a sudden, men and women have a hell of a lot of time together. And they and then the girls go to a base Yaakov and the girls go to a school and the girls get Ashkofa. And now, and then, now is what you're talking about, a more modern perspective of jiving intellectually. But for years, this was never a Shiloh, right? <laughs> the, the, the limited intellectual training that, that women received and it was clear, even in, let's go back to our grandparents, or I'm, not, I'm even going to say our parents in a way, but let's talk about our grandparents, our great-grandparents. Of course, these shilas never came up. Was, right? I mean, again, there were definitely divorces, but I think what you're talking about is a byproduct of a 19th, end of 19th, 20th century, now 21st century uh, situation that has occurred, where free time, men and women, what's your ashkafa, what's your school, and I think that is, what we, and I know you, I'm pretty sure you agree with me on this. That yeah, I, just, I want to throw a couple of things in. First of all, um, <laughs> I want to tell everybody that Dr. Judy, when I'm, when I'm going off here into, into La La Land, Dr. Judy's taking out his pen and, and making his notes, but go ahead. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm stroking my dog that's here on my lap, but Dr. Judy is, is, is making his points, but go ahead. Okay, so a, a couple of things. First of all, um, I just need to take exception to your erotic differential formula between men and women. I don't want to discuss it now because that's not my topic for now. I just want to make a record for it. Secondly, the uh, the traditional view that you ascribe to religion and anthropology is shared, by the way, alike with Darwin and a star student who is Freud. So that's yes. not religion-based at all. It's biological, which makes sense. Um, the other thing I wanted to say... Uh, is that you, you kind of talked about um, the notion that jiving intellectually is a new concept. I'm stressing something a little bit more basic than that, which is that jiving emotionally okay. is a new concept. I have to tell you a cute anecdote. My mom was a very intelligent and worldly person. And I once discussed, I remember like when my kids were going out and I had told her, you know, my kids, a number of them are very bright. And she says, what are you looking for in your kids? I said, first of all, I'm not looking, they're looking. But secondly, I'm looking primarily, is it a nice guy? And my formula was Chafetz Chaim guy. Sure, you know, that's, <laughs> you want a nice person, you know. Ah, the Chafetz Chaim, Derek Halimut, blah, blah, blah. I said, leave me alone. Let's have a nice person first, and then we'll worry about the rest. And I asked my mother, look, when you were dating, you know, <laughs> she came from a very rabbinic family. And no, and she had proposals of various okay. sorts. I said, what were you looking for? And she says, oh, definitely somebody who had like a major creative personality, somebody who was going to be a mover and a shaker, somebody whose ideas were colossal and not limited, not not small town, big town. I said, how about a nice guy? He says, didn't even enter my mind. Wow. Dumbfounding, dumbfounding, because she pushed with me also when the kids were going out with all kinds of people. Is it a nice girl? Is it a nice guy? Worry about that first. Leave me alone with the other. With the, and I'm saying, and that's going back not so many years. It's a question of, okay, 50 years or so. And it's dumbfounding that they did not think about, you know, the emotional matching. They thought of intellectual matching. She would never marry a dodo or somebody who was stupid, or God forbid, somebody who doesn't know how to learn, which is worse than being stupid. You have to know how to learn. 
Okay, but other than that, driving emotionally, I would say, is the most the, the biggest point that's being stressed these days in terms of people who are looking for partners across the spectrum. It makes no difference whether they're wearing Make America Great or Make America Horrible hats. It makes no difference. The main point is basically, does this person fit my temperament? Does this person fit my emotional style? Much more so these days than beliefs or religion, um, although not politics. Politics, unfortunately, has become a crux of the matter. Like I've spoken to some couples, of course, who are having issues, and they said, a Republican and Democrat, forget it. If I found out that my spouse votes for Trump, no way, which is kind of interesting. The way Very interesting. We, we, we know about Mary and Matlin. Was it Mary Matlin and, um, and James Carville that they were one was Republican, one was right, Democrat? Right. It was, was seen as a freak show. Right. No, I, 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 people saw that. Wow, isn't that a great relationship where you could actually have contrasting oh. views? And look how well they get together over a cup of not, coffee. Not people in the village. Not people in the village. People saw that as something that makes no sense. It's impossible. Much worse than I mean, we had people in, in our school. I remember a religious guy, a religious Jewish guy, marrying a Catholic girl who didn't even convert. And they saw this kind of shidduch of Carville and the Mrs. Carville as something that's out of this world. How can they do that? But they could understand people people marrying who are religious but in different uh, situations. Okay, so anyway, so the main point that I was making, I think it's fairly clear, is that in marriages, essentially, there is, it's an arrangement. It's an arrangement where you say, if you want to be honest, I'm willing to give up X, Y, and Z. I am often willing to give up my black and white notion of reality my black and white notion of shoulds and shoulds, shoulds and shouldn'ts, my black and white notion of what is good and what is bad to accommodate somebody else's opinion, not necessarily because I think the other person is right, but because I need to have a relationship with them. So you give things up. Look, we all know in the boardroom, you laugh at the chairman's jokes, even if they're stupid. And it's understood. You're giving up that autonomy, you're pretending, maybe you're being an apple polisher, but it makes sense. I'm having a job, I'm having a community, I'm having an economic fraternity, I'm having dividends, benefits, so it makes sense. If don't, I don't want anybody to delude themselves that a marriage is something, because it's mandated or ideal in certain respects, that it also answers all your needs or does not include the increase in stress and unhappiness in certain respects. And that's fine. We do that all the time. When you diet, you introduce a certain amount of unhappiness or stress to yourself. When you do exercise, when you walk, when you study something, everything is at an expense, right? You spend money for something, you're losing money. So it does not phase me to say that there are stressors in the relationship that are there. So getting back to your original COVID situation, it does not surprise me that when the stressors get greater, that the balance of payments goes off and says, okay, now this car is not worth it. I said, I'm going to buy this car. I plan to keep it for a long time, but now that it's developing transmission problems, I have to reconsider it. Or now that I'm developing cramps in my foot, I have to reconsider whether this car is good for me. So now that there are more stressors, I can no longer keep this kind of projected deal with this other person who matches me 25%, 85%, 92%. It becomes a differential in negotiations. I'm saying this totally from a Marxist perspective. I mean, you don't have to be a radical Marxist. Somebody who has some understanding of um, trade-offs. That's all that's going on. If you try to look at it from holier glasses, you will be misled. 
And, and I think our society, even the holy aspects that you were talking about, have, if not encouraged it, have understood it as a reality. And 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 the the in, incidences of divorces, uh, even before COVID, in what we call the from world, was always has, has been on a, a up a up rise for for years. Um, and and you know it has created a, a lot of fodder. Uh, you know, when people think about, you know, this incredible, oh, they got divorced, they got divorced. And it's becoming, I think, I, I think the fodder aspect, the sensationalist aspect is dying down and it's becoming more, much more natural. And I think we are in a place, honestly, where you shrug, wow, okay. You know, and you, it isn't a shocking thing, a, a divorce anymore. Uh, the idea of a, again, I mentioned politics. When me and you were growing up, the idea that a candidate was a divorced person or was on his first or second marriage, uh, that would be a black uh, mark that the person would never be able to escape. We, we are in a, a place where divorcing is, is sad. I mean, we, we, I, I, I have been at many divorces in my, in my role as a rabbi and being part of a Betin, but they are very frequent, common. And as uh, Rabbi Schwartz, uh, who was my mentor in this way, says at every divorce that you should be uh he gives them encouragement he says go on this is not a even though it's sad you know obviously that has passed he he is he has a a very positive perspective and he tells the couple how now they have a a new start they could go on they could find new partners and their life can be very very positive and what rabbi schwartz or without schwartz says to these couples i think does represent in many ways the perspective, even in the very orthodox world of, yes, we're sorry that this had to come to an end. But I think many more people than maybe even you're giving credit for are taking that option, um, right? Yes. Let me just comment two things. First of all, let's not forget that in terms of orthodox Judaism, divorce is seen as a failure in God's mission, so to speak, or in your fulfilling God's mission. You know the citations in the Gemara about the who cries and the whole world getting destroyed, etc. I don't know how many tears or buckets of tears are supposed to be spilled. But I just want to add, I want to give a backhanded com- um, a compliment to the more um, rigorous controlled societies. And I'm speaking primarily about Arabs and about Haredim, which are two that I know very well in terms of my studies. And that is that they realize that compatibility exists only to a certain degree and they work around that by limiting the relationship in the marital couple. In other words, when they make sure that the amount of together time is limited and that the amount of overlap and roles is limited, they basically ensure themselves a a certain degree of tolerable autonomy for each of the partners so that you're much less likely to find incompatibilities when your roles are separated and your together time is really quite limited. So I give them a compliment. I don't know whether it's premeditated or not, but it works out very well. Now that which is yeah, go ahead. Okay, so you're right. What you have been saying that is really a throwback to what I was sort of like um, talking about about the about the caveman, the caveman. That's right. That's right. And 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 I would assume that would be true in 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 the Amish cultures and other cultures where the the time is limited because of the roles that are assigned and because of the type of society and because of what's what's important. I mean, I, I remember hearing on a documentary an Amish person saying. 
you, you think that you're so much better than we are? Look what you do with all your free time. You, 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 yeah. you're, you're totally frustrated. Yes, I'm out in the field working with a cow and a plow. And it's right. I don't have the tractor. I don't have all these modern stuff. But but I'm happy with my with my busy time because my busy time makes me feel fulfilled. And I'm and, and, and I'm not frustrated by all this empty space of what to do with it. So so I think that there is, um, you know, you, you're applauding it. I, I see. Yeah. But but I, no, I'm applauding it in terms of the success. It bodes for the longevity of the marriage. I am not um, uh, uh, applauding it in terms of mental health. I have quite a tirade about that, but I don't want to get into that. But I want to just want to tell you something cute. One of the methods we use, especially with Haredi populations or different populations, is trying to index the relationship in terms of how man and wife address each other. And we found some really colorful data. Um, in some um, cultures, they call each other Tati and Mami. And I asked these people, before the kids came, what did you call each other? So some answered, we still called each other Tati and Mami. And the other one answered, some of them answered, we don't call each other. There is no way. And in fact, there are some subgroups that even when the children are there, those that uh, uh, kind of preach a kind of a priest-like celibacy, modified, obviously, but still celibacy, where there is um, the addresses, like literally, listen here or say here. Like the man would say, right? And then there's others where they actually have no way. Some actually use first names, which is interesting. Some um, call each other Mr. So and Mrs. So, like it would be Mr. Junie and Mrs. Junie, or Rabbi Junie and Rebbitson Junie, even though they're not rabbis and Rebbitsons. That's the way they call each other. And then there are some cultures, I don't want to name them because I see it as a of atrocity in human relationships that have no way of addressing each other. You start speaking. You start speaking. And then the person says, oh, what did you say? And then you start the sentence again. But there is no allowed way of interaction that actually allows you to address the person, which to me is an, a signal of how distant these people are from each other. Their relationship is only... Instead of saying we have a relationship in many areas except X, Y, and Z, which is not allowed and not sanctioned, is that we have no relationship except in a few areas where there is common ground. And again, great prescription for longevity of marriage if that is your scope of the relationship. Bad prescription in terms of having a relationship with someone else. And especially if your children or the people you're siring or training end up joining a culture which is a little bit more open-minded they're going to have no precedent for um, parental relationships because there was no parental relationship other than a limited um, negotiation of terms and scenarios. Well, again, we've definitely talked around it, and I do want to tell you that in in one other way you have been my mentor. Uh Uh-oh. And and that is that um, you um, allowed me to enter into your world when I was a, a young fellow, and you actually gave me a lot of perspective about your relationship with your wife, who I think you've been married to now about um, uh, a number almost, of years. Yes, yes, a half a almost half a century, I would say. I think around there, um, somewhere around there, maybe even more. Um, right, I think so. Right, I think you so. You are dating me, sir. Yes, but my I point... got married at twelve, by the way. So yeah, okay, all right. But my point, though, is is that you actually, when you described, you know, your 
courtship and your relationship with with your wife Esther and 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 you guys do come from despite the fact that there are similarities in your background very different uh backgrounds and um and very much so uh, uh intellectual meeting of the minds a sense of the strength of one and the other and and I've been and I think you have modeled this in many ways for me about how you can have a relationship where you come from different perspectives and how you are able to realize where things work, how things happen, um, uh, almost the best of both worlds. Obviously, you don't, there's going to be things which one partner strengths, one partner has, the other partner doesn't. And there's also going to be, as you say, things that you compromise on, things that you sacrifice, so to speak. But I think that in many ways, Dr. J, you, you're not just speaking here as a therapist. I think you're speaking very much as someone uh, who is a, uh, uh, a, a person who has constructed a successful modern relationship, uh, which isn't up in the clouds and very real and understanding of what each party has done and what you, each party can do. So I'm, I'm throwing you a lot of compliments here and a lot of compliments about you and your relationship. I'd I, like to ask you to put that in a writing and send it to Esther, okay? <laughs> Yeah. Well, like I said, and 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 you actually, if you, I don't know if you remember, but you showed me many pictures and many I, images from your courtship, from your dating, from your college ages, and I actually always think about you in that in that way of of, of having that more um, mature perspective, despite the fact that things people are, are are very very different. So let's just wrap this up here. I mean. Can can we get you know you've, you? I, I, I don't want to accuse you of, of of equivocating, but are you telling many of our listeners that they should should abandon maybe some of their rosy colored or ultra religious uh, perspective of things and be more realistic in their relationships if they are in them now? And and are you also asking? Are you would you also say that don't be scared of the boogeyman divorce? if that's really what's called for. So. Okay, so I'm saying several things. First of all, my shoulds. The only shoulds I'm doing over here is the should of looking reality in the face. I am not prescribing any particular kind of behavior or relationship pro or con, because that's all a question of where your values are. But one thing you should not do, from my perspective, one thing that's unhealthy is to close your eyes. Closing your eyes will cause you all kinds of internal harm, ulcers, indigestion, and just plain unhappiness. So know what you're doing. Other than that, what I would say is that definitely divorce should not be seen as the ultimate failure as compared to other kinds of unpleasant situations, such as feeling miserable in the relationship. You have to weigh one against the other. I'm not saying that um, divorce is a joke. In any culture, especially in the more traditional cultures, it's not a joke. It comes with stigma. It comes with personal pain. It comes with all kinds of um, um, incipient depression, which is sure to, to set in. But I am saying that, no, divorce is not necessarily worse than other options that are there. I don't think divorce is worse than abuse ever. Okay, once you get abused, that's the red line. I'm saying this in terms of mental health, not my own value, mental health. You don't live down abuse no matter what you do about it. And it's not worth it, no matter what the stakes are. Um, otherwise, you have to make some value judgment, but realize what you're doing. Realize that by not getting divorced, you are accepting X, Y, and Z, which is unpleasant. And I would say as a formula, people don't change. 
Okay, so just know once you're in it, that's going to continue. The question is, do you want to continue this forever or do you want to get divorced? And yes, you should find out either in the literature or talking to some people what it means to be divorced. What are the implications? And also talk to some people say, what does it mean to persevere in a relationship which makes you feel uncomfortable? But that's the only shit I have is look reality in the eye. I have no other shoulds. I have no uh, chutzpah to say that my should is somebody else's. And my should is not a should either. It's my personal preference. There's no reason to say that somebody else should have my personal preference. I'm not going to recommend to anybody to hate tomato soup just because I hate it. It doesn't work that way. Right. But, but I think what you have helped people, if, if they are uh, scared of this, is, is, is the realization that there is a bigger picture for yourself and, and maybe even for the other person involved. I think in many times, you know, Einstein said that that marriage is something that a fool jumps into and then he gets a lot smarter, right? The person, when he's young, he has the, uh, um, the hormonal uh, push to, uh, to find the mate. And then as that... And, and, all, and also an idealistic value push that somehow you can become something more than just yourself by joining a new unit and then losing yourself in the unit, which is a nice ideal uh, wedding cake kind of theme, which uh, lasts about uh, a couple of right. days. So, so I, I agree with you. I think that, that I think that maybe this is maybe something that I don't know if Darwin understood that, that part of that that biological imperative is also this ego imperative that you sort of have mm-hmm. a fantasy of what you're able to do when you're Darwin, a person. Darwin did not understand that Freud did. Yes. And I think that that also, you reach that ceiling at around 40 or so or 50, when you realize that that was something that was sort of playing in your head to to give you the gumption to move on. And then when you're 40 and 50, you realize, hey, I'm never going to be that person that I thought I was going to be, at least achieve that. And now you look around with your partner. And, and, and I think that's also a byproduct of what happens then is the byproduct is a sense of failure. And let me just say, there is nothing wrong with renegotiating a contract. Right. There's nothing wrong with saying, okay, so the ideals we had, they don't really make sense for us right now. But now, going forward, let's forget about that. Does it make sense? What can we do? That ma- And you can find sometimes a renewed life to a relationship, which is satisfying. It's not ideal. We're not looking for ideal. We're right. looking for satisfying. Right. Or and, worth it, so and, and it comes without the... Um, angst of having to go through the divorce, which I can tell you is is, is difficult um, from being in the Besden and, and knowing a, a little bit about the divorce lawyers and other things like that. And also the sense of, of of discomfort of finding someone you don't know, the the unknown, of leaving your domicile, all of those things, as you say. Well, the old shoe, the old shoe phenomenon. Yeah, that's right. It, it, the old shoe doesn't it, it, it hurts but at least i know it right at least you know it's got something and i and i think that there is a, a a positivity and a stability there look we haven't mentioned the other boogeyman which may be for another uh, another uh discussion is of course the the uh audience to this tableau which is in many cases the children of various ages who can't help but be affected and I know there have been studies just, which... Just concatenate that. Audience-victims. Yes. Yes, I, I, you're right. Victims because many times parents don't realize the vi- what they are doing to their children when they act out and, and scream and get into arguments 
in front of their in front of their children what that does or divorce i mean this used to be something that was a a topic you should not mention because we're very much into individual freedom divorce itself hurts the children per se regardless of anything else just the fact that parents separate and you now have two different um um fields or centers rather than one is hurtful to children That's not to say that staying together is not hurtful also in certain circumstances, but to deny the fact that divorce in itself is a problem for children is to put your head in the sand. Right. And, and, and again, that was generally from the period that you and I come from, one of the main reasons we saw couples right. stay together. But then it was buried for a while by PC correctness. And now everybody, at least in the mental health field, realizes that no. It is a problem. Divorce per se is a problem. The most amicable blah, blah, blah divorce is a problem in itself. Which, and this is, I, I guess, uh, something that you're probably aware of, doesn't generate within the children a greater tendency for f- what um, quote-unquote failed relationships as well. Do precisely, children- precisely. Divorce itself um, makes it more likely for the children to get divorced. I'm not saying that's a problem, but I'm saying statistically, definitely. So again, for those of you who are in lockdown, who are in, in this sort of pressure, uh, we hope that this little tete-a-tete between uh, Dr. Juni and myself um, has given you some light and given you some hope and realize that um, you're not alone. I think that you would also say, Dr. Juni, that take advantage of the resources that are out there. Uh, be open with your, with, the, with your partner, but also realize that there's plenty of options, whether you're from the very orthodox world, the Haredi world, Hasidic world, there are very professional and, and, and options that are, are there for you, mature options, uh, realistic options out there. And, and you have to be able to get the, the, either these. I, I, need to add, I need to add a comment there, which is be open with open eyes, knowing that by being open, you are also taking a risk. Because if the relationship is based on certain myths, and then you're open, and you blow those myths away, you are endangering the longevity of the relationship, which is not a bad idea necessarily. But when you level, sometimes the relationships are built on not leveling. I'm sorry, but... In other words, once once you open the Pandora's box of the relationship... Yep. Be aware, just like in a way, I, you know, we talk about a trepidation of uh, our children. For a blood test. You're That's letting right. yourself That's right. For- it's like, or are your children going on their first date? You know that this they might get married. If you start this process, realize it might unravel and realize that you might end <laughs> up deciding that divorce is where things have to go. So that's it, my friends. Uh, I know we've just touched the tip of the iceberg. Uh, but uh, I know Dr. Chudy has, there's more where that comes from. Uh, and and, and we'll, <laughs> we'll be hearing it hopefully for, for many, many, many uh, times uh, to come. That's it for this. That's it for this week. Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you hopefully on the other side. Thank you again, Dr. J. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 